0: Section 19 of Charles James Fox by Henry Offley Wakeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9. Saint Anne's Hill, Part 2. At Saint Anne's Hill, Fox found the perfect rest which his tired nature most required, the loving tenderness which his warm affections so strongly demanded, the inner society of intimate friends which is the real solace amid the anxieties of life to all generous natures, and, above all things, time, that inestimable boon to the bookish man, time that may be wasted in busy idleness. When I am here, he says in a phrase which goes straight to the heart of every man who knows what a holiday ought to be, every hour and minute of idleness grows to have a double value, and, as one knows, one is so soon to have so little of it one likes to enjoy it while it lasts pure and unmixed. What his idea of idleness was we can easily see from a subsequent letter where he says, Mrs. A. tells me it is a long time since I wrote to you. I thought not, but yet I recollect that when I wrote last I was in the ninth book of the Odyssey, which I have since finished, and read eighteen books of Iliad, so that it must be a good while since." the date of the letter shows that just over a month had elapsed. Thirty-three books of Homer in a month is no bad record for a man who thought of writing up over the door of his house. How various his employments whom the world calls idle! St. Anne's was indeed a perfect place of retirement for the statesman, who, freed at last from the turmoil of politics, was eagerly longing to devote the remainder of his life to literature the house was small but comfortable standing on the side of a hill which overlooked the thames about thirty acres of ground went with it part of which was carefully planted and formed the garden and shrubbery and part reaching up to the top of the hill was left to grow wild with heather and gorse the garden was fox's chief delight he loved flowers and shrubs with an intensity which came only second to his love of homer he was his own gardener and thoroughly understood the science of old-fashioned english gardening nothing gave him more unalloyed pleasure than an afternoon spent in training the honeysuckle and the roses and deciding with the help of mrs fox where to plant the new shrubs from the nursery so fond was he of his garden that he made a catalogue in his own handwriting of all the flowers which grew in it his life at this chosen home was equally characteristic in its simplicity and forms a welcome contrast to the town life of earlier days an early breakfast in the newspaper began the day after breakfast an hour spent with mrs fox in reading some italian poet led to the more serious studies of the day which lasted till dinner at three o'clock these varied of course according to the work upon which he was engaged but they usually took the form of the critical study of some great poet after dinner the care of the garden occupied him till tea and when that was over, he generally worked at his projected history of the reign of James II until bedtime came at half-past ten. Such was the ordinary routine of life at St. Anne's. Simplicity was its characteristic, love its inspiration, literature its occupation. Happiness reigned everywhere in the statesman's paradise until politics, like sin, entered in to tempt and to destroy. Literature was the serious work of Fox in his retirement. From his earliest youth he had acquired a love of poetry and an admiration for the classics. His knowledge of the classical authors had often stood him in good stead among the vagaries of his youth and amid his triumphs in Parliament. They had been both a solace and an amusement. But until now he had never had the opportunity of applying himself to the critical study of literature and of comparing the authors of one age with those of another. That opportunity now presented itself, and he fastened on it with avidity. Fortunately, he numbered among his friends the three men who could best help him in his undertaking. In Dr. Parr, a Warwickshire clergyman, he found the width of reading and extent of knowledge in classical subjects which could illustrate and explain any point which might arise. In Gilbert Wakefield, the nonconformist and the jacobin lay hid an instinct for scholarship and an enthusiasm for classical literature which could make even questions of grammar interesting from these fox was content to learn but in lord holland his nephew he found a pupil apt thoughtful and receptive in whose independence of judgment he could rely and to whom he was not afraid to pour out his crudest thoughts Yet with his intense love for literature fox was extraordinarily limited in his grasp of it he had no knowledge of philosophy of law or of political economy and no great command of history poetry was the chief almost the only object of his worship and his knowledge of all the greater poets of the world except of germany was intimate and profound poems of action pleased him more than poems of thought And his affections, however widely they strayed, were sure to come back before long to the great epics of Homer and Virgil. His criticisms on poetry were always distinguished by taste. He had an instinctive sense of what was proper and fitting, an instinctive loathing for what was unreal or overdone, and he never fell into the trap so fatal to many a writer of the eighteenth century of mistaking perfection of form for correctness of taste. In all that he writes, there is a healthy manly vigour of mind, which comes like a sea-breeze, before which falsity and affectation cannot live. Among English poets, following his usual rule, Fox preferred the earlier to the later. Chaucer was his special favourite. What a genius the man has, he exclaims. Spenser gave him more pleasure than Milton, partly, he confesses, because of his close relations with italian poetry but chiefly because the paradise lost seemed to him in spite of grand and stupendous passages to have a want of flow of ease of what the painters call a free pencil shakespeare strange to say he never criticizes but in his occasional references to him assumes his superiority as unquestioned of more modern poets dryden is certainly the one whom he admired most especially in his imitative work he had caught more he thought of the spirit of Juvenal in his satires while gifford who had distinctly aimed at it was unreadable pope was too artificial to please fox's robust taste nor were the subjects he treated such as to rouse any interest in one who it must be confessed delighted in something exciting and imaginative Of Wordsworth he had no great opinion, which was a poor return for the poet's faithful admiration, but, oddly enough, he admired Cooper. His sympathy with the oppressed and his ardent love of peace made amends for his Methodism, and Fox frequently instanced the opening lines of the task as among the finest poetry of the English language. Among foreign authors he gave the palm to Racine and Ariosto. The classical imitations of the former and the romantic grace of the latter especially charmed him. I observe, he writes to Lord Holland, that Goodwin shows his stupidity in not admiring Racine. It puts me quite in a passion. Je veux contre eux faire un jour un gros livre, as Voltaire says. Even Dryden, who speaks with proper respect of Corneille and Moliere, Villepens Racine, if ever i publish my edition of his works i will give it to him for it you may depend what can you mean by saying there is little good of the new poetry of cooper what not the triplets to marry? not the verses about his early love in the first part not one of the sonnets not the shipwreck or outcast pray read them over again and repeat your former judgment if you dare but after all fox's heart was in the classics and his judgment upon modern poetry, in spite of his excellent taste, was somewhat warped by his great predilection for the classical models. That he did not appreciate religious and thoughtful poetry, and seems only to have seen in Dante and Milton a collection of brilliant and striking passages in a cumbersome and heavy setting, probably sprang largely from the sense that they were moving in a totally different sphere from the great classical poets want of connection and interest certainly seems to us a strange charge to bring against the divina commedia probably the most philosophically arranged poem in literature of the ancient writers the greeks were to his mind far superior to the romans among the many latin poets whom he admits having read he only singles out for special praise ovid and virgil the odes of horace pleased him for their grace and sweetness of versification but he does not mention the satires or the epistles. In Greek dramatic poetry, he had read only two plays of Aeschylus and nothing of Aristophanes, but Euripides he greatly admired, and more than once recommended a study of him as the best training for a public speaker. He appears to me, he says to Colonel Trotter, to have much more of facility and nature in his way of writing than Sophocles. Of all Sophocles' plays, I like Electra clearly the best. In the Antigone there is a passage in her answer to Creon that is perhaps the sublimest in the world. I suppose you selected Hippolytus and Iphigenia and Aulus on account of Racine, and I hope you have observed with what extreme judgment he had imitated them. In the character of Hippolytus only, I think, has he fallen short of his original. The scene of Phaedra's discovery of her love to her nurse he has imitated pretty closely and if he has not surpassed it, it is only because that was impossible. Homer and Virgil were the subjects of his minutest and most constant study. He once read through the Odyssey for the purpose of noting any peculiarities in prosody, with the triumphant result that there was only one line, and I do not know what that is, which I could not reconcile to the common rules. His correspondence with Mr. Wakefield, mainly turns upon points of homeric prosody and philology it is worth notice that the parts which attracted him most were those which appealed to his affections and to family relations in the iliad nothing pleased him more than the brotherly feeling between agamemnon and menelaus and the amiable character of menelaus whom homer by the way he says seems to be particularly fond of the interview between priam and achilles where the old man unattended seeks the grecian ships and with his arms embraced those knees and kissed those fearful hands blood-stained which many of his sons hath slain entreating achilles to grant him hector's body that it might receive due funeral rites for thy father's sake look pityingly down on me more needing pity since i bear such grief as never man on earth hath borne who stooped to kiss the hands that slew my son. He pronounces to be the finest passage of the whole poem. He constantly refers to the description of the anxious family council among the Greek leaders at the beginning of the tenth book as being particularly fine. If you will not read the Iliad through, he writes to Lord Holland in 1797, pray read the tenth book or rather the first half of it, it is a part i never heard particularly celebrated but i think the beginning of it more true in the description of the uneasiness in the greek army and the solicitude of the different chiefs than anything almost in the poem it is one of those things which one cannot give an idea of by any particular quotation but which is excellent beyond measure in placing the scene exactly before one's eyes and the characters, too, are remarkably well distinguished and preserved. I think Homer is always happy in his accounts of Menelaus, remarkably so, you know, in the Odyssey, but I think he is so always, and in this place, too, particularly. You see, I am never done with Homer, and, indeed, if there was nothing else except Virgil and Ariosto, one should never want reading. If Homer was the poet Fox admired most, virgil was the poet whom he loved he loved him all the more because he was so distinctly on a lower level than homer and yet so consummate an artist read him he says in one place until you get to love him for his very faults fox too had one point in common with virgil which he could not have with homer he was a great defender of imitation on principle and in virgil's works he found plenty of argument for his favourite thesis Once he read the fourth book of the Aeneid through, marking carefully all the passages which were borrowed, and was delighted to find that they were nearly all greatly improved by their transplantation. In Wakefield he found a supporter of his theory, and he writes to him in great delight. Your notion with respect to poets borrowing from one another seems almost to come up to mine, who have often been laughed at by my friends as a systematic defender of plagiarism. Indeed, I got Lord Holland when a schoolboy to write some verses in praise of it, and in truth it appears to me that the greatest poets have been the most guilty, if guilt there be in such matters. His favourite passages in Virgil as in Homer were in the episodes rather than in the main texture of the work. The story of Nisus and Euryalus, the address of Evander to Pallas, the episode of Dido, were the parts which he loved best. Of Aeneas himself, he had a very just contempt, and wonders if Virgil really intended anything else. In a letter to Wakefield, written in 1801, he thus sums up his opinion upon Virgil. The verses you refer to are indeed delightful. Indeed, I think that sort of pathetic is Virgil's great excellence in the Aeneid, and in that way he surpasses all other poets of every age and nation, except perhaps, and only perhaps, Shakespeare. It is on that account that I rank him so very high, for surely to excel in that style which speaks to the heart is the greatest of all excellence. I am glad you mentioned the eighth book as one of those which you most admire. It has always been a peculiar favorite with me. Evander's speech upon parting with his son is, I think, the most beautiful thing in the whole, and is, as far as I know, wholly unborrowed. What is more remarkable is that it has not, I believe, been often attempted to be imitated. The passage, sin aliquam in casum, is nature itself, and then the tenderness in turning toward palace, dumte care puer, and etc. In short, it has always appeared to me divine. On the other hand, I am surprised and sorry that among the capital books you should omit the fourth, all that part of dido's speech that follows numfletu in gemuet nostro is surely in the highest style of excellence as well as the description of her last impotent efforts to retain aeneas and of the dreariness of her situation after his departure in a letter to mr trotter he gives the other side of the picture though the detached parts of the aeneid appear to me to be equal to anything the story and the characters appear more faulty every time i read it My chief objection, I mean to the character of Aeneas, is, of course, not so much felt in the first three books, but afterwards he is always either insipid or odious, sometimes excites interest against him and never for him. One thing which delights me in the Iliad and Odyssey of which there is nothing in Virgil is the picture of manners which seem to be so truly delineated. The times at which Homer lived undoubtedly gave him a great advantage in this respect, since from his nearness to the times of which he writes, what we always see to be invention in Virgil appears like the plain truth in Homer. But exclusive of this advantage, Homer certainly attends to character more than his imitator. Then he adds in his postscript, even in the first book Aeneas says... Sum piusineus fama superitera notus. Can you bear this? Criticism of this sort might be multiplied from Fox's correspondence almost without limit. His range of reading in his special department of poetry was exceedingly wide, and he brought to the study of classical poetry a taste trained in the best school of scholarship, which but rarely failed him when dealing with the literature of later times his strong vigorous and clear intellect gives a turn of sound common sense to all his opinions he has the faculty so rare and so precious in a literary critic of self-restraint enthusiastic he always is but he never permits himself to gush yet in spite of the sound judgment the powerful mind the clear statement the trained taste the self-restrained method the subdued enthusiasm which appear in every line of his letters or literary subjects it is impossible not to feel that there is something wanting his judgment on poets does not it is true deal only with the outside with the form and the expression yet it does not pierce into the inside he fastens upon passages episodes scenes and criticizes them he never deals with the great work as a whole or attempts to penetrate into the motives which produced it and the circumstance which moulded it he is always interesting never profound always tasteful never intellectual he criticises each author as he studies him from the standpoint of his own personality he judges him by his own likes and dislikes he looks for the passages which by their tender sentiment their true sympathy their artistic management fall in with his own feelings and appeal to his own nature he never tries to put himself into his author's place and try to realize how his work appeared to him and what it was meant to be perhaps the conditions under which he wrote his criticisms did not admit of this it is too much to expect that a statesman who is able to devote but the fag end of a busy life to the claims of literature and from circumstances throws most of his literary criticism into letter form Should do more than bring the force of a vigorous understanding and a trained taste to bear upon the artwork of his favourite authors. Yet, the complete failure of his own literary effort, the history of James II, gives rise to the suspicion that his defects lay deeper than in the outward circumstances of his life. He lived, it is true, at a peculiarly unfortunate time for a literary critic who had not the opportunity of being original. At the time when his literary tastes were forming, there was no school of English poetry worth the name. The old artificial school of Pope had become so thin and attenuated as to be scarcely visible. The romantic and imaginative school inspired by the French Revolution was hardly born before Fox's death. The intellectual school of modern days was yet to be. For a literary prophet, it was perhaps an opportunity. But prophets are rare in literature as elsewhere, and certainly there was not in Fox enough of moral stamina or of intellectual depth to make one. End of section 19.